0: Welcome to the Oceanside Sanctuary podcast. We're continuing our teaching series Misunderstanding Jesus. In this series, we're revisiting the odd, abused, and ignored sayings of Christ. This week, we're taking a look at one of the most interesting sayings of Jesus found in John chapter 6 verses 52 through 58. Jesus states that only those who eat his flesh and drink his blood will have eternal life. Tune in now to hear a fresh perspective from Pastor Jason Coker about the odd saying in Jason's teaching titled, Are We Really Supposed to Eat Jesus? Alright, so today we get to continue our teaching series called Misunderstanding Jesus. We're uh, jumping into uh, some of the sayings of Christ that are, I think, m- more difficult to understand or have been abused in some way or misused to uh, maybe hurt people or control people or manipulate them, and or sometimes in some cases just sort of head scratchers, like why would Jesus have said uh, something like that? And today uh, really falls under that category. We're going to be taking a look at John chapter 6, where Jesus talks about being the bread of life. And before we do, I'm just going to ask that you pray with me as we enter back into a time of uh, gathering around the Word, and, and we're, what we're really doing here is the same thing that the kids are doing. And we spend time together worshiping, and then we sort of break off, and we try to learn a little something about who God is and how we can have a deeper spirituality. Uh, and so I think that's a good thing to pray for, that we would do that well today. So just join with me. Lord, we thank you for today. And for another opportunity for us to gather as a congregation to uh, enter into a space where our hearts can be uh, enlarged, where our imaginations can be inspired, where we can sort of step through the veil of uh, everyday life and begin to experience the mystery of how you are at work in our lives, how we can learn to recognize what you're doing and How that can deepen us and grow us as humans so we pray today lord that as we read these words that you would really speak to us that we would learn a little something about you in jesus name amen Amen. Um, so i noticed yesterday that uh, my tires on my truck are getting really worn down Uh, some of you know i have a relatively new truck it's about three years old to me It's about four years old like technically and bought this truck a few years ago because i was in the market for an electric vehicle i had narrowed my car shopping choices down to like a volkswagen e golf right because i was thinking this is what i'm going to do i'm going to make the switch in my life to driving an electric vehicle i'm going to become eco-conscious i'm going to minimize my carbon footprint i don't really need you know a big gas guzzling vehicle at this point in my life anymore And so I had narrowed it down to like an e-golf or like a a Ford. The Ford Focus has like an electric version. Both of these cars get really good reviews and you can buy them a couple years old. They're super cheap. I had decided I was gonna buy one of either of those two vehicles. And then Janelle promptly took me to, this is all Janelle's fault. Janelle promptly took me to the Bob Baker dealership and convinced me to buy a Ram 1500. So I went from being, like, the guy who was going to be driving a little, like, electric vehicle to church every day. You know, people would look at me, and they'd think, what, a, what an ecologically conscious <laughs> pastor we have, to, like, the guy who's driving a truck. And, uh, you know, it gets, like, eight miles to the gallon. Uh, and it's proven to be very, very useful, uh, not least of which maybe perhaps makes me more attractive to my wife, apparently, She likes the idea that I'm like a truck driving person. She even got me a bumper sticker that says, you know, don't come between a man and his truck. I have that in my glove box. (laughs) So anyway, the point is is I'm driving this truck and uh, it's been a few years now and the tires are worn down like pretty, pretty far. You know, it's not dangerous, but it's definitely come to the point where I need new tires. Now, uh, if, if you have a Ram 1500 and it's time for new tires, of course, That means it's time to go up a couple of inches in tire size Uh, so I I'm convinced that I need to go to like at least 33s or maybe 35s which is gonna require new wheels as well because the wheels are gonna need that little locking you know ring on the wheel to make sure that when I'm aggressively off-roading in like Baja Mexico that the wheels don't like come off the bead right if I'm going to be aggressively bo- like off-roading in Baja, Mexico, that means I'm going to need a few other things too. Uh, I'm going to need a new like aftermarket uh, suspension system, pro- you know, preferably something that I can control from a dashboard inside my truck. And then it's Mexico, right? So the infrastructure down there is not quite as good, uh, so I'm going to need a CB radio uh, so that I can get in touch with whoever I need to get in touch with.) I- I'm convinced these are things that I need. These are not wants. These are needs. Some of you guys know the story of me uh, when I, the last time I had sort of a big jacked up four-wheel drive, I was living in Utah in the middle of winter. And I, I've told this story before. We, I drove my family, uh, including my very small children who were still strapped into car seats, up into a canyon in the middle of winter and got stuck up there. So what I've learned from that experience is you need a bigger truck, Right. <laughs> So, this is where I'm going with this. Jesus has something to say about my desire for larger wheels and tires. Believe it or not, he really does. John chapter 6, verses 52 through 54 is one of my favorite passages of all time. It's one of my favorite passages because you often hear that Jesus was one of the greatest teachers ever. And this is my favorite passage to point to as proof to the opposite because jesus actually is a terrible teacher in this particular passage Uh, so let's read it together we're not going to read the entire thing but it will be familiar to you and we're going to talk a little bit about the context but what i want to do today is just start up in john 6 verse 52 if you have a bible you can turn there if you don't it's up on the screen says this the jews then disputed amongst themselves saying how can this man give us his flesh to eat And so Jesus said to them, Very truly I tell you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Now, we have just jumped midstream into a teaching of Christ where he is essentially saying to the people following him, You have to eat my flesh and drink my blood, otherwise you can't live. What in the world is he talking about? I think it helps to understand sort of the bigger context. The bigger context is this. The day before this, Jesus had... Fed the 5,000 people so he committed that miracle of multiplying food in the middle of the desert to feed all these folks and of course it's probably much more than 5,000 because in that time they would have really just counted the men because only men count right so so what that would have really been is Jesus breaking bread and fish and multiplying it to feed probably 8 or 10 or 12,000 people including women and children So Jesus was able to, in the desert, literally multiply food to feed people. He gets up the next morning with his disciples. They cross the lake to the other side, and all the folks that he fed miraculously wake up, and they're like, whoa, where did he go? So they chase him across the lake. If somebody had given you a free lunch, you'd probably find out where that person was the next day, too. So they come across the lake, and they chase him down, and they say, hey, Rabbi, you know, what's up? Why did you leave us? Why did you abandon us and come across the lake? And he says, I tell you the truth. You came looking for me, not because you want God, but because you want me to fill your bellies again. This is like the Jason Coker version, if you're curious. I tell you the truth. You came seeking me not because you're really interested in God. You came because you want me to give you another free lunch. And so they challenge him right back, right before this passage, they challenge him and say, Well, you know, Moses gave us bread in the desert. What about you? Can you do the same thing? So now it has turned into a a kind of contention between the two of them. Jesus says, I tell you the truth, I am the bread that comes down from heaven. You think Moses fed you, but I am the one who's here to feed you. And then, of course, they drill down farther what is he talking about how can we eat him how can he be the bread that came down from heaven they say to him surely you don't really mean that you don't really mean that we have to eat you and this is the part where jesus utterly fails as a teacher because any good teacher by our general definition of a good teacher would clarify what he or she was talking about jesus doesn't clarify it he doubles down on his image he said the jews then disputed amongst themselves saying how can this man give us his flesh to eat jesus doesn't say oh, what's the matter with you people it's a metaphor it's a symbol I'm I'm trying to tap into this old story that's so meaningful to your liberation as a people and the idea that God could nourish you. And I'm trying to tell you something about where you truly get nourished. He doesn't do that. He says, no, no, I tell you the truth. You have to eat my flesh and drink my blood or you have no life in you. He continues, very truly, I tell you, unless you eat the flesh of the son of the man and drink his blood you have no life in you those who eat my flesh and drink my blood have eternal life and i will raise them up on the last day he continues for my flesh is true food and my blood is true drink those who eat my flesh and drink my blood abide in me and i in them just as the living father sent me and I live because of the Father, so whoever eats me will live because of me. And this is the bread that came down from heaven. Not like that which your ancestors ate and they died. But the one who eats this bread will live forever. Jesus presses into the misunderstanding. He does not clear up that he's speaking in spiritual ways he doesn't he doesn't sort of clarify for people that this is a spiritual lesson instead he presses into the misunderstanding he doubles down he triples down on their question do you really expect us to eat you this is a difficult passage primarily because for centuries since the beginning of the church, the church has argued about what this means. So really significant splits in church history have happened over disputes about whether or not we really are eating Jesus's body and really are drinking Jesus's blood when we take communion. We, we just took communion. People have been killed over the question of whether or not this really is Jesus's body partly because jesus said no i tell you the truth it really is and you have to eat me in order to live forever and so an enormous portion of the christian church worldwide is dedicated to the idea that somehow mysteriously that when we eat a cracker that has been properly blessed by the proper folks that that cracker at the moment of consumption literally becomes the body of christ And and same with the Jews, that it literally becomes Christ's blood. And another portion of the church said, well, that's just ridiculous. That's not really what's happening. What's happening is that this is a symbol of Jesus's body, and we enter into the power of the symbol. Now, I'm not here to tell you what is right about that argument. Um, I've never eaten human flesh before, but I'm pretty sure it doesn't taste like a stale matzo cracker. I'm a Protestant. I'm a Protestant. So I, I don't believe in the transubstantiation of this bread into Jesus' body, but I'm not here to tell you that that's what you have to believe. That's not the point of today's passage. I don't think the point of John 6 is to convince you that when you enter into this practice, you're actually Jesus, eating Jesus' body. In some ways, I don't really think it matters. I think Jesus is trying to do something very particular with this saying. One of our problems, I think, especially in um, the modern world, is that we really struggle with the idea that we have to rationalize things and and reason them out and really understand what's happening. And I, I really sympathize with that. I'm sort of an analytical person by nature. I want to understand how things work. I, I want to understand what is truly true and be able to explain it to other people. That's, that's what I do. It's, it's what I live for. But the problem with that is that sort of commitment to over-rationalizing everything can become just as much of an obstacle as the inability to engage in reason. We're all products Of the modern age which means that we all generally speaking believe by default that all true things all good things all right things come from reason our ability to reason out what is true and test for uh, things that might get in the way of what is genuinely reality we all generally by default expect the church to function that way too like I come here to hear what's really true and to explain everything that is sort of working behind the scenes of what I see. In other words, we have a kind of modern scientific bias about our world. And science is good. Science is incredibly important. Science is allowing us to do all kinds of really good and wonderful things. But there are limits to what we can do with reason. Soren Kierkegaard was a a philosopher, Danish philosopher who lived in uh, the 1800s and wrote mostly in about the 1840s. And and he wrote about this idea quite a bit that reason could be as much an obstacle to our encountering reality as it could be a tool for getting us there. And he says uh, this in one of his works, which is concluding unscientific postscript. He says, thinking can turn toward itself In order to think about itself, and skepticism can emerge. He's not saying that skepticism is necessarily a bad thing. Skepticism can be terribly helpful and important. But he goes on to say, But this thinking about itself never accomplishes anything. This thinking about itself never accomplishes anything. Kierkegaard really understood that reason and logic only work within the rules that it sets up for itself, and that reason is limited by the ability to pierce the veil beyond those rules of logic. And so Kierkegaard liked to say that he thought in order for us to really encounter the reality of God, we had to go beyond reason. That there is nothing reasonable about saying that God exists. And moreover, you can't possibly, reasonably, or logically prove that God exists. So Kierkegaard would say one of the biggest problems with church in his day, in the 19th century, was people who sort of apathetically simply practiced their faith without any kind of critical thinking about what they were doing or why they were doing it. Oh, the way that he characterized this was we had to take some sort of a leap. That a leap in our lives of faith has to occur beyond reason. One way of thinking of this is, you know, when we describe water, for example, we can logically describe water as H2O, right? Two hydrogen atoms. Sorry, Nemo. Yes, just a second. So we can reasonably describe water as H2O. That's a logical description of water, two hydrogen atoms and an oxygen atom. But it takes a leap, a catalyzing impact of some kind for water to become ice. That transformative leap that water takes to become ice is a good metaphor for what Kierkegaard described as what we have to experience in our lives of faith. We have to go beyond... What we think and enter into the mystery of who god is beyond our ability to reason and this i think is what christ is doing when he says no you must eat my body and drink my blood or you have no life in you he is pushing his hearers beyond the bounds of normal rational reasonable logical thought, and rather than explaining it away when they push back and they ask for clarification reasonable rational clarification he insists no this really is the bread from heaven i really am the bread that you must eat in order to survive When jesus insists that he is real food that his blood is real drink it's an affront to our rational minds i think jesus does this on purpose because our rational minds become an obstacle to encountering the reality that exists beyond everyday life ironically science tells us this is true One of the things we know from cognitive science is that we don't make decisions every day on the basis of what we reasoned to be good. On the contrary, we tend to rationalize the decisions we've already made because of our desires. Anybody who's ever been through the checkout line of the grocery store knows that's true. What do they do when you go to the grocery store before you enter into the checkout portion of your purchase You have to run the gauntlet of things that you don't really need because retail stores understand that if you have to stand there and wait in line that if you look at the candy and the gum and the you know like the lighters that are made out of Disney characters or whatever it might be that suddenly you will be like oh I really need to have a Snickers right now and then you will rationalize your desire until it makes sense to you and then you'll buy it. This is why like TJ Maxx has taken this to the ultimate level, right? Now you don't just go through like the two little lines on either side with stuff. You have to run the gauntlet of a maze of junk that nobody needs while you're in line at TJ Maxx. Every time I'm in line at TJ Maxx, I've got to buy a bag of popcorn or You know, like a new case for my iPhone or something. Because this is how our brains work. We don't live our lives reasonably or rationally. We live our lives out of our deep desires. We use our rational minds to give ourselves permission to do what we really want to do. Jesus is trying to break that cycle when he confronts us, With the idea that we must eat his body and drink his blood he's using a powerful image and insisting that it's true in order to cause us to rethink reality now there's an entire realm of humanity that does that on a regular basis and it's art this is what good art does good art and literature and theater and dance. It bypasses our reasonable, rational minds and enters into that place of our desires and invites us into a transformative experience. We even have a word for what happens when artists enter into that reality beyond reason. We call it inspiration. Because something outside of the artist enters in and gives the artist a flash of genius or a flash of brilliance that comes from somewhere other than themselves. This is why artists are stereotypically tortured souls. Because artists can't control when that inspiration comes. It is not inherent to them. It is an outside catalyst that transforms them and transforms their work into something that they never really could have imagined something that changes us when we participate in it. Christianity really is more of an art than a science. Think about what we do. We come here, we sing songs, and we write songs. We come here and we open up this book that has been given a really beautiful leather cover, and it's got gold bonding around the edges. But but really what we have here is an ancient collection of poetry and mythology and apocalyptic images of where God is trying to drive history. This is art at its best in literary form, and when we enter into it and we read it and we engage in it, it transforms and changes us like any good art should. And in church, what we do here is we enter into that art form. When we take communion, we're participating in a kind of 2,000-year-old performative art piece together. I don't know if you think that that cracker actually turns into the body of Jesus or not, but thinking about that cracker as the body of Christ and thinking about that cup as the blood of Christ disrupts our minds and allows us to enter in to this really powerful image and that powerful image has the ability to transform us that's why we do it christianity is not so much believed like other reasonable propositions christianity is experienced We take Jesus' words, and like any good piece of art, we inhabit it. We look at it, we touch it, we feel it, we experience it. Because in doing that, we experience a reality beyond what we can conceive of with our own minds and our own brains. This is what we do when we gather here. We invite you and each other into Experiencing the mystery of God. That's why we have stained glass windows on the walls. right why we read poetry to each other from ancient sources. It's why we eat the cracker and drink the cup. It's why we sing songs because these things help us enter into a reality beyond our ability to conceive of what is true. And so we inhabit it. We inhabit our faith. We experience it. We all know that when an artist paints a painting, that their painting of a tree or an apple or a person isn't actually the tree or the apple or the person. But we say that it is. We insist that it is. And part of the reason we insist that it is is because that art has the ability to capture the reality of that tree or that apple, or that person in some ways better than the actual thing itself. And so, when we gather here, we invite you to enter into that mystery, that space where God is calling us beyond our doubts, beyond our skepticism, beyond reason, and into the mystery of how God's inspiring you and your life to encounter him in everyday ordinary things would you pray with me father we thank you for this morning and this opportunity to gather around your words and experience the mystery of experience the mystery of your good news as we continue to sing this morning As we continue to ponder your insistence that we can only be nourished by you, we ask that you would help us to enter into that space beyond our doubts, beyond our ability to understand and grasp and simply inhabit the reality of your grace and your mercy in our lives each and every day. I confess, God, that I am constantly rationalizing my desires and constantly asking you to use your goodness to give me the things that I want. I ask, God, that you would transform my desires so that I would want you, so that I would desire to commune with you and to be united with you. We thank you for your words in Jesus' name. Amen.